but I'm just going to read a um, passage of Scripture, and I'll give you a little bit of the historical backdrop and the context. So here's Jesus, Matthew 24, starting at the first verse. He's actually on the Temple Mount, and while he's there, you know, his disciples are coming to him, and they're showing him the temple. This would have been Herod's temple. And what happens is, you know, look how magnificent it is, Jesus. And Jesus responds, and he says this, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So he's telling them, guys, this temple, you think it's magnificent, uh, it's splendid, it's beautiful. It was quite quite a thing to behold, really. And he said, but I'm telling you something. There's not going to be one stone left upon another. Now, the next thing that occurs is the disciples ask Jesus two questions. The first question, verse 3, is tell us when will these things be? And then secondly, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When will these things be? What 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 he, he was just talking about was the destruction of the temple. And if you fast forward, so we'll say this was around roughly, people not exactly sure when this was, you know, whether it was 33 AD or 30 uh, AD. Some people think Jesus actually uh, died a little earlier than that, some historians. But ultimately, this event took place in the year 70 AD when the Roman armies invaded Jerusalem And they literally encircled the city, and then eventually they ended up invading and and, um, penetrating the the walls. They came in, they destroyed the city, they went in, they desecrated the temple as as Gentiles. They went into, particularly the, uh, the general, his name was Titus, he went in, and they desecrated the holy place, and they burned the city, and literally, because the temple was overladen with gold, and they wanted to retrieve the gold, they began to dismantle that uh, temple stone by stone. So the very word that Jesus said, not one stone will let be left upon another, came to pass, exactly as he said. Now, that happened in history. It's a fact. It was a terrible thing. The, the Jews were dispersed at that point, and they went into uh, all the nations of the world. It wasn't until 1948 that they were resettled in their homeland. So that was the time of the Gentiles. Scriptures talks about that. But the second part is, okay, so what will be the sign of your coming, Jesus, and the end of the age? Now, if you continue to read this passage of Scripture... You'll see that the Lord speaks of many different events that would occur. He says there will be false prophets that will appear to many in an attempt to deceive. He said there will be an increase of wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes. That lawlessness would flourish, resulting in a culture of intolerance towards um, particularly followers of Christ. And there would be a great persecution. And that happened, of course, as well, and particularly in the time of uh, the Emperor Nero. So all of this stuff occurred, but Jesus is very clear in verse 6. He says, even though you see all of these things happening, referring to his time, he's saying, I don't want you to freak out. I don't want you 
to be concerned because he particularly says here, the end is not yet. When you see all this happen, okay, it's speaking of a time when destruction would be coming. Remember, it's connected to the destruction of the temple. But he says the end is not yet. So the end is not yet. Okay, Jesus, so the end is not yet. What are you saying? This isn't the sign of the fulfillment When will these things occur? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? All right, verse 8. These are the beginning of sorrows. Literally in the Greek languages, these are birth pangs. This is a birth pangs. There's, There's something else that's yet to be birthed. And so these are just the warnings, in other words, as as a woman begins to have birth pains, knowing that the time of uh, her, her delivery is, is approaching. So these things are just warning signs, okay? They'll deliver you up to tribulation, kill you, you'll be hated. I've already mentioned this. And then, verse number 13, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, we, we don't necessarily understand this, the context, right? Because at that time, uh, later on, under Nero in particular, the, the massacre and the persecution of the Christians that was going on. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have to endure stuff to be saved. And we don't understand that necessarily today, most of us. But some people in other countries, there are believers that know exactly what it means to suffer persecution. But he, he's speaking about that. And, of course, it was true in his day, and it's true today as well. There are Christians all over the world that are suffering persecution in a very, very terrible way. But that's still not the sign, the singular sign that Jesus speaks of. It will be the sign of his coming and of the end of the age. So, did Jesus, was he being evasive? Was he not answering their question? Well, some of us might say, well, didn't Jesus say elsewhere, no man knows the day nor the hour? Yes, he said that, referring to when he would return. Now, we're not by any means presupposing that we know the day or the hour. Any person does when Jesus is coming back. Clearly, that would be unscriptural. But Jesus said something here in verse 14 that I think we need to look at. Verse 14, he says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then what does he say? And then the end will come. Now, then the end will come. So the question was, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So Jesus is answering this. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world as a witness to throughout all the world to all nations, which means ethnic groups. And then the end will come. Now, the early church understood their responsibility to take the gospel to those who had not heard the gospel. It's really interesting when you look at our culture today and we say, well, hey, we live in a Christian nation. I don't know if that's factual anymore. Uh, You know, there are more Christians in China than there are in America, by the way. It's a proven. There are many nominal Christians in America, people that say they are, you know. But those who really know the Lord, who have a real relationship with him, it's becoming less and less. In fact... Churches that are growing, the fastest growing churches in this nation are by and large the Pentecostal churches. 
and particularly like the Assemblies of God, of which we're part of, is one of the faster growing movements. But let me tell you, the only reason why we're growing is because of immigrants. People coming here from other nations who know God. And a large part of that is people from the Latin language countries. That's the truth, guys. Our Christianity is in decline in the Western nations, by and large. It's interesting, in the places of the world where Christianity is really growing, are in Asia, Africa, South America. Those are the places where Christianity is flourishing in many places. But in our land, here, that's not the case. Now, it's interesting that Paul said there will be people, 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. They have a semblance. They have an appearance. They have maybe a profession that they're quote-unquote followers of Jesus, Christians, whatever term you want to use, but there's no power. And the point I want to make highlight to us this morning is Jesus was very clear that it's the gospel of the kingdom that must be preached as a witness to all the nations and throughout the world, then the end will come. What did he mean by the gospel of the kingdom? First of all, we have to remember, or we have to understand, is that salvation is not just an experience where we receive eternal life, where we receive forgiveness. That's true. But salvation is all about, the gospel is all about being called into a kingdom. Jesus talked about the kingdom. There's a kingdom. You know what he said in one place? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. And another time he said, the kingdom of God is invisible in Luke chapter 17. You can't see it. It's invisible. It's not of this world. But the kingdom of God is real. In John chapter 3, there was a man named Nicodemus who was a, a religious leader and he approached Jesus and he asked him, you know, he, he was speaking to Jesus and Jesus told him he had to be born again. And he was like, what are you talking about being born again? What, what does that mean? Can I, how can a man be born again? Can he enter into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, I'm not talking about a physical experience here. I'm talking about being born of the spirit. And Jesus said this, unless you are born again, spiritually speaking, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God. The word see doesn't mean to be able to behold it like physically with your eyes, but it means to understand and even to experience. God has a kingdom. And in his kingdom, the Bible says in Romans 14, 19, the kingdom of God is not food and drink. In other words, it's not about what food you eat, what food you don't eat, in a sense of some of the Jews were in the ceremonial law. But the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's righteousness, peace, and joy. It's you're righteous with God. Your sins are forgiven. You're made righteous. And then God gives you peace. He gives you joy. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. It's not just a good talk. It's not just a message. It's not a philosophy or even a religion, but it's a demonstration of power. Everywhere Jesus went, he preached the kingdom. I love that fact. 
And he not only declared it, but he demonstrated it. For example, in Matthew 4.23, it says, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and disease among the people. Elsewhere, he, he commissioned his followers in that day, the 12, Matthew 10, 7 and 8. Jesus said this, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. My point here is in both of the aforementioned references, there is a clear reference, there is a clear uh, indication that the gospel was not just a message. It wasn't just a lesson. It wasn't just something that you should learn. You know, on Wednesday, we've been teaching on hearing the voice of God. And here's something that I shared Wednesday night. The Pharisees, in John 5, this is what Jesus said, the Pharisees. These guys, their name means separate ones. They were the elite. They were the conservatives. They were the ones that prided themselves in, in how they were, you know, true to the scriptures. And, and uh, so they were fundamentalists, so to speak. But yet Jesus said to them, you, the, you know, you diligently study these scriptures. You diligently study the scriptures, but yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. In fact, he, he said this, you diligently study the scriptures. You pour over the scriptures. You read the Bible of their time. And he said, and these scriptures testify of me. They point to me is what Jesus was saying. But he says, but yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Now, think about that for a moment. Do you know, if you were born in the home of a Pharisee, when you were, when you were two years old, do you know what would happen? They would take you as a male, and they would take the scroll of, of, of the law, and, and they would actually pour honey on it, and they would make you lick it. And the idea, as they would quote Psalm, one verse out of Psalm 119 that talks about how God's word is sweet as honey. They would begin to prepare you to have an appetite for the scriptures. So by the time you were 12 years old, 12 years old, you were required to memorize what is what was known as the Torah. We call it the Pentateuch today, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When they were 12 years old, those kids had to have that memorized. What does that look like today? That's like memorizing from the beginning of Matthew to about halfway through the book of Hebrews. Memorizing it. Then, after you're 12 years old, you didn't get a break. You had to memorize the rest of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. So you had to memorize it all by the time you ended up getting out of your teens. If you're going to be promoted and to become a Pharisee, you had to memorize all of that scripture. And so Jesus said, you diligently study the scriptures. He was not exaggerating. He was telling the truth. But yet he said, the thing about it is they couldn't see the, the wood. They couldn't see the trees, right? They couldn't see the woods because of the trees. And, and the fact is they didn't understand who Jesus was, even though they read these scriptures and these scriptures pointed to him, testified of him. Wow. Jesus has a kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's a kingdom of power. It's a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of provision. Everything that you need is found 
in that place of coming into the kingdom. So how do I enter the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? It's there. It's there. When you're born again, you come into the kingdom. And God is, is a good father. He's a king. He's a righteous king. And he takes care of his children. You know, I mentioned recently there are really three things the Great Commission advocates. Number one, to extend the borders of the kingdom. Go into all the world and preach the kingdom. Extend the borders so everybody, every nation knows about this kingdom. Number two, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, we're we're talking about verses 18 through 20 now. And what did he say? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does that refer to? This thing Romans 6, 4 calls newness of life. There's a new life. It's not being religious. It's not going to church. It's living in a kingdom. There's so many people that, like the Pharisees, they're devoted, they're religious, they even read the Bible. But they don't have this understanding, this revelation, this experience of living in God's kingdom. But as they say, there's newness of life. In other words, I'm going to enact justice for my children. I'm going to take care of my kids. When you come into my kingdom, this is the amazing thing. is You're no longer responsible for your life. You're no longer responsible for your family. You're no longer responsible for your future, your finances, any of this. When you come into the kingdom, God says, if you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, if you do what I want you to do, you live the way I've called you to live, I'm going to make sure that you have everything you need. Now, I'm not advocating we don't work. I'm not saying that. Jesus was clear. But what I am saying is he's promised he's going to take care of us. That's amazing. So it's no longer my responsibility. Come on. There are things in life we have like we have these good ideas. But then there's what we call God ideas. And a God idea is great. A good idea is all right. But when you when it's from God and God shows you in his word, this is what I want you to do. This is what I've called you to experience in your life. Guess what? The onus to furnish the vision to, to, you know, resource the vision, to take care of the vision, to make sure it even comes to fulfillment, it's not yours. It's not mine. When we have a God idea, when he speaks to us, which means seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, he's the one who's going to take care of it. There are times that we aren't experiencing answers to prayers because we just have a good idea. It's a man's idea, and it might be okay, and there might be some validity in that and some blessing in that. But ultimately, God says, I have a a God idea for you. I have my government that I want you to experience over your life, and and I want to teach you the ways of my kingdom. He said, teach them all things that I've commanded you, which speaks about educating us how to live within this kingdom. What am I saying? I'm saying, guys, this is a major, massive paradigm shift. Because some of us... We are, especially the type A's, we are, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to take care of this. It's not working. I'll get it done. I'll fix it. And Abraham tried that once because he was believing God's word for promise of a son. And God wasn't coming through in his timetable. And God didn't answer him when he thought he should have. And so Abraham, you know, he rationalized, well, I'm just going to help God out a little bit here. Come on, right? So he gets involved with Hagar, his wife's servant, and a child is born named Ishmael. And what ends up happening is God says, that wasn't my doing. That might have been what you thought a good idea, but that wasn't a God idea. And it caused trouble. 
And it was, it was a source of, of contention and anguish because Abraham didn't wait on God. He tried to take matters into his own hands. And you know, we sometimes say, well, doesn't the Bible say God helps those who help themselves? Actually, it doesn't. It's not in there. You can go on Google and check. You won't find that. Right? And Google never lies. It's not in there. You know, I jokingly say, play on words, God help those who help themselves. Because we don't wait on God. We don't do things his way. We don't live under the rulership of his kingdom. And unfortunately, things don't always go well for us. At the very least, we're not living in that place of that optimal experience of his peace, his power, and his provision in our lives. At the very least. Sometimes we can get ourselves in big messes because we're acting on something that was never God's will. Jesus said it's the gospel of the kingdom. Kingdom. What does that mean? King's dominion. The dominion of the king. The rule, the reign of the kingdom. He wants to be your Lord. He wants to rule and reign over your life. He wants to be the king over your life. And he knows what's best for us. He said, if you follow me, I'll make things go well for you. I'll bless you. It'll go well. It's an amazing truth. Submit to me. Things will go well. I'll bless you. You'll have everything you need. But submit to me. Stop sinning. Living Contrary to God's word, stop trying to do things on your own. Stop trying to be maybe even a good person this morning. But you don't personally know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you do, if you know him, and you say, well, I've just been going through a difficult time. I don't know what's happening. And, you know, you, you, sometimes we just get so just ah, inside. You know what it's like? And God says, peace. Be still. Be still and know that I'm your God. And I will be exalted in your life. I'll be exalted in the earth. But peace, be still. Be still and know that I am God. The word know is yada in Hebrew. Yada means to know experientially. It means to know personally. It doesn't just mean to give intellectual assent to something. God wants you to know him personally. I encourage you to come out on Wednesday if you're available. Seven o'clock, we're doing a teaching. It's going to help you to really live this out in a very practical way. God wants to have relationship with his children. It's replete through the scriptures. Relationship. Know you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. Often our prayers are simply us talking to God. It's a monologue. But when we are still and we actually listen, then we shift into dialogue and we begin to hear counsel and wisdom from the Lord himself. Can we just stand together? I want to pray for you guys before we go home today. Thank you so much for coming. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals, and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals, and that's more than three. It's basic math. 
worst metaphors. Presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations.